This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Empty Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks here, as always, with Kira Sismadia from the Canadian Camping and RV Council. It's the fourth week of the month, which means we're focusing on the RV industry and outdoor recreation for everyone here. We have Eleanor Ham from the Canadian Recreational Vehicle Dealers Association with us, as well as Shane Devinis from CCRVC and CRVA, which are too many acronyms for me to spell out for you guys but he's really important and that's why he's here. Also, Kurt joining us from National Parks Traveler again, fresh back from all kinds of crazy, awesome trips that I wish I was taking. So he'll fill us in on those kinds of things and what he's seen at the National Park System in the United States. Susan Carpenter from the RV Women's Alliance is here with us and our special guest, Rich Snipple from Encore RV, who's gonna talk about some overlanding and some other cool things that his company does. What are we, I think probably where I wanna start just to get it out of the way is, and we talked about this prior to the show, starting Shane and Eleanor is touch a little bit on the RV industry, dealer inventories, numbers, shipments, things like that. Because on the surface, if you don't know what's happening, I feel like it looks bad, but it's not right. No, you want to start Shane or? No, you go ahead, Eleanor. <clears throat> yeah, we're hearing, we are seeing some media saying numbers are dropping in terms of shipments as well as, as dealer inventories, but, or dealer sales. But, but I think that realistically, when we look back, we compare year, our, our stats are over a year prior. So when we look back to 2021, it was the best year ever in the industry. And so I think now there's just been a bit of an adjustment. Retail sales in Canada are down about 15% to the end of May. But when we look back historically over the last... 15 years, still one of the, probably the second best year ever. So I think just uh, the numbers that are being reported tend to skew it, but it's still very strong. Dealers do tend to have restocked inventory. So they do are getting product now on their lots, which was a bit of an issue last year. So I think ultimately it's a good time for the consumer because there is product out there that's available and, and sales are still going strongly. Awesome. Shane, anything to add? Yeah, yeah, and I agree with everything Eleanor said. We're Canadian shipments are still are still over last year, and last year was a tremendous year. We're up nearly 100 percent over 2020. In the U.S., we're seeing the shipments numbers for sure go down, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's best to have the shipment numbers at align itself with as closely as possible with the retail uh, numbers that we're seeing. Because yep. then you don't see a, a drastic buildup of inventory on, on dealers' lots. And it's always good to keep things current and the inventory turns there. So I'm pleased that, not pleased, but I'm, I'm encouraged to see that the those numbers are going to align themselves. I did travel down to Elkhart on Monday, and I can tell you that going from Ontario down to Indiana, there were a considerable number of units that are coming back up north in commercial trucks. So they're on their way to be delivered to, to our lots. And uh, I think there's still some restocking. We're very much right in the middle of our selling season up here in Canada. So it's great to see that the, uh, the units are starting to come up here again. So is there a sense that, and obviously this is good news, I think from a more inventory for dealers, more inventory for consumers, more choices, all those kinds of things. Is there a sense that even though this is slowing down, but not really, as we've discussed, is there a sense of, is there a segment of RVs that are selling less? In other words, is it across the board, all types of manufacturers, models, sizes that are slowing down, just recuperating and taking a breath in 2021? Or is it larger ones that are slowing down because of gas prices? Or do we not know that yet? From our side, when I'm just looking at my stats over here right now, everything seems to be down about the same in terms of, we said 15% nationally and all RV trailers are 17, 19% for fifth wheels. One thing we're noticing is there was a huge surge in class C motorhome sales. 
So that's interesting because that may be the rental fleets that are being restocked, right? It may not just be the consumers sold to the consumers, which for us is a very positive because then it means that the rental industries are seeing the, the tourism, the tourism coming in from international travel. People are coming back uh, to, to participate in, in travel across Canada in their RV. So that's a very encouraging number for us. But overall, it's pretty even across the board. Kara, have you seen similar things? I don't know if you've ta- had a chance to chat with Alberta specifically about these. Yeah, no, I we haven't seen, I think, recent numbers in Alberta. And Eleanor would have all of those if we had. But I think individually speaking with dealers that I have working relationships with, I think everything, everything Shane and Eleanor are saying is being echoed there. They're still seeing sales and things are going well in, in dealership right now. So... That's good. I think they're playing a bit of catch up for a little while and it's good to see that that really stressful portion of this is maybe they've got a bit of a breather thing on that front specifically, but I think moving units across we're bringing them up uh, with good priority and it, it sounds like that's happening. All the great things are ending up. Good to hear. Okay. So a couple of quick housekeeping notes that I forgot to mention at the top of the show. One is I always forget to say that our show is sponsored this week by CampSpot. So if you're interested in a reservation system for your campground, they are a campground management platform that both staff and guests love. That's their quote. So I work with CampSpot closely. We know we have a lot of parks who use their software and things like that. Super happy to have them as a sponsor. And then they also have the CampSpot marketplace side too, which is as we talk about all these consumers buying RVs and having more choices and lots of things like that, places like CampSpot's marketplace help them find a place to camp in, I think just the U.S. now, but I, obviously they're going to expand to Canada. I'm all sure. Sure. There are some parks in Canada listed on Marketplace, I'm quite sure. Are there? Okay. Okay. I could remember last time I looked. So anyway, CampSpot, thank you for being a sponsor of this episode. We are very appreciative of that. And then we'll see if we can get through this whole show. I want to talk to Kurt next about his trips to all the different national parks and what he's seen and stuff like that. If I happen to fade in and out and break, it'll be a better show. Here, I'll take over for me. It's 40 degrees, which is why I'm sheltered under my hat and sunglasses and for those of you in the U.S., it's about 100-ish or approaching it very quickly. So, Kurt, what's going on? Tell us about some of your cool trips you've been taking and what you've seen at the national parks. We took off in uh, late June for a two-week adventure and uh, went across Wyoming through Nebraska, touched Iowa a bit, and came back through Kansas and Colorado into Wyoming and then back to Wyoming, back to Utah. So it was quite the long trip, a long Along the way, I got to visit four different units in the national park system. And there's two things that uh, I guess I'd like to address. One is I saw a lot of RV traffic on the highway. The gas prices hadn't jumped up too high at that point. I think I was paying between 423 and 479 a gallon. I saw a lot of fifth wheels and a lot of trailers out there. So it, that was pretty impressive. I went to four units of the park system that are not your name brand, household name brand parks. I went to Scott's Bluff National Monument in western Nebraska. I went to Tallgrass Prairie National Historical Park in southeastern Nebraska, and then down to Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas, as well as Fort Larned National Historic Site in Kansas. And each one offers a, a different flavor. Uh, Bluff is a uh, Oregon Trail went through, and uh, it was the end of the prairie, and here come the Rocky Mountains, and look out for that. Homestead National Historical Park, is all about the Homesteading Act of 1863, where the federal government came and said, hey, if you can go out there and uh, tame anywhere from 40 to 160 acres for five years and show that you've made it productive, you can have it for free. Tallgrass Prairie preserves a remnant of Tallgrass Prairie that once swept across 170 million acres of North America, Canada, and the U.S. And then Fort Larned National Historic Site is a Civil War era fort. It's the best Civil War era fort preserved in the national park system. And it's really interesting to see how the soldiers lived in, out there on the frontier. But what I came away with was, in addition to the, that the RV traffic I saw out there on the highways, it didn't seem to be slowing down at all. But there's a real concern in the national park system, the national park service, that most of the visitors to the national parks are only going to 25 units. Last year, there was roughly 300 million visitors to the U.S. national park system, and about 150 million, 150, went to just 25 parks, your Yellowstone, your Grand Canyon, your Yosemites, your Blue Ridge Parkways. 
And I sat in on a Zoom presentation yesterday and the, the director of the National Park Service, Chuck Sams, was pondering about that and trying to figure out why is that? And the one reason is that the National Park Service does not advertise these sites. Yeah. But I can tell you in my travels, it was very reflective. There weren't a lot of people there. I had Fort Warnett almost to myself. I had uh, Tallgrass Prairie. I shared probably with about 20 other people. Homestead National Historical Park, maybe five people. So on one, one hand, it's really kind of alarming. These are wonderful sites. They're poignant points in American history and in what they interpret. And people are just driving past them. And I'm not sure why that is exactly. If it's because the park service doesn't advertise them, if people have to be, it has to to be awareness. They just don't know what they're missing. Yeah. Possibly the traveler promotes these parks a lot. We try and promote every unit of the national park system. Certainly they're not in the news as much as Yellowstone because frankly, Yellowstone is one of the better communications staffs in the park system. I think there are 12 units in the national park system that have full-time communication staff, 12 out of 423. So that's part of the problem right there. The individual parks just don't have the staff to tell people what they're doing. Back in 2015, before the national park services centennial 2016, I had the opportunity to spend a good part of a day with the superintendent from Glacier National Park. And I said, the problem you guys have is you got all these great stories, but you don't have the staff to tell them. So I think it ranges up and down the entire park system from Washington, not being able to advertise, Congress won't let them advertise to individual national parks to have the staff to generate press releases to send out to the traveler and other media. And of course, it's probably been the same in Canada, but the journalism industry in the United States is not doing well. Since 2014, I think we've lost almost 2,000 daily newspapers across the country, thanks to Facebook and Google and other online entities. And so there's just not that many media out there to promote these places. And the one thing we're trying to do this year at the Traveler is promote the smaller parks, the Fort Larned's, the Tallgrass Prairies, and they all have wonderful stories to tell. I really enjoy my visits to each one and I'm enjoying writing the stories about them. Do you think that, and maybe this is a question for Rich, who we're going to bring in and introduce here in a second. Do you think that as consumer behavior continues to change, like we've seen, and we've touched on this before on the show, we've seen some of the retail shows that we've been to, Karen, I went to one in Alberta here in, in Calgary a few months ago or however long ago that was, but the trend toward the smaller trailers, do you, as you see that, as you see the millennials want to, and I don't know what the official definition of overland is to me, it's overland, which is what everybody does, which I'm certainly I'm wrong about, but do you think as that behavior changes that there's more of an opportunity to make some of these smaller parks that don't have the larger facilities or the big private parks nearby more accessible to people? And I guess maybe briefly to you, Kurt, and then we'll have Rich introduce himself and talk about why we have him on the show. I think You've got a point there, Brian, because each of the parks I went to, they don't have campground. You'd have to find a commercial campground someplace else. But I think a larger part probably is the the lack of awareness because I I ran into a couple from uh, Ohio and they were driving out to Grand Teton in Yellowstone and I ran into them in Western Nebraska. And they have been that route before. And so they knew about Scott's Bluff. And so they wanted to stop along the way, just revisit it and whatnot. And as the superintendent told me, we're not a final destination for the National Park Vacation, but we are a destination. And I think by raising the awareness of these places, because the bulk of the U.S. population is on the coasts. And if you want to go to the Yellowstones or the Rocky Mountains, you're going to drive across places like Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma. And if you don't know these parks exist out there, you're not going to stop. You're not going to divert to them. There used to be an incentive, like you can save money on your taxes by visiting the smaller parks, but you have to pay more in taxes by going to Grand Canyon. Like a scavenger hunt, you save 1% on your taxes for every tiny national park you visit. People would go then, for sure. But tell us who you, like obviously President Von Koravi, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you, your company, and then I think we kind of just want to pivot real quick into what you can talk about overlanding specific and, right. and whether you have some comments on what Kurt was talking about with the smaller national parks and trends there. I've been in this industry for about 22 years, whether it be cargo and motorsports trailers, RVs, or the marine industry. But recently, about a year ago, we launched this company, Encore RV, and our focus was to be on smaller products, at least out of the gate, because we believe that there might be a potential recession or slowdown that the cycle's been pretty high for a while. 
since about 2010. So we're on a 12 year roll and that's not seen very often. Things continue to climb for that long and having a smaller product, it was going to be a little bit easier for us to set up dealers. And we also knew that this niche of small trailers was still substantially growing. So that's the reason we chose this, this line of products that we manufacture. We put a little twist on it to make it a little bit different than other things that are out there. It's a hundred percent wood free. It's all composite materials. It's really designed and built to last a long time. The frame's all aluminum. We don't use steel. So we try to do things a little differently to attract people into what we're doing. And uh, so far it's been a pretty good run. It was a challenging time to start a business naturally with supply chain issues and very early on, we were having some real employee issues, finding the right help that we needed, but it's turned pretty well and things are going very well for us. But that in a nutshell is what my background is. Awesome. So tell us, and I know when we scheduled you for the show, I had some stats pulled up in front of me here from KOA's 2022 North American Camping Report. I'm just skimming them right now back here on my laptop. It says 27% of campers took an overlanding trip for the first time in 2021. And 46% of all campers want to try overlanding this year. So I guess my first question is for those of people like me who have never owned an RV because I can't afford one. And also I like lakes and cabins too, but we won't go there. But anyway, for those of us who don't, who aren't completely familiar with that term, what does overlanding mean to you or to the industry, Rich? There's a lot of people have their own view of it, but for me, it's, it's that guy that is getting out, trying to get off grid. He's got a vehicle and or a trailer. A lot of times it's just a vehicle that's overlanding with a rooftop tent or sometimes even tent camping out of it, but they're not going to the state parks or the federal parks. They're going off into, can be often government owned land, but they don't want to be in a campground with 50 other campers or a hundred other campers. They're looking to get off and uh, do their own thing and, and see the true wilderness that's out there. And for them, a lot of the times there's two types of people. There's the guy that builds up the the rig, the nice trailer, the Jeep that he's going to pull with or whatever it might be. Each of those, the things that they buy, they'll add on another 10 or 20 or $30,000 or more worth of accessories. That's a big thing that we see. And they may or may not ever really take it off road. They might just be on a fire road or on gravel or dirt, but they're not going rock crawling with it, so to speak, which a lot of people think overlanding would be, but it's actually probably not, even though it falls into that category as well. For us, Probably about 85%, 90% of our campers will still take this into a campground. And we plan for that. That's why we have a microwave and an air conditioner, things that you would more need to do with either short power or a generator. Even a, a good um, solar package with lithium batteries would have a tough time really powering an air conditioner the way most people would use it. A microwave is fairly easy to work though. But the other thing that we're finding is the ages. It's all over the place. Well, I initially thought we would sell to a much younger crowd. We've got people that are either adding this to their arsenal of RVs. They might have a fifth wheel, but when the husband and wife just go out, they want to go by themselves. They want to try this lifestyle of smaller camping because you're more in tune with the wilderness when you're doing it in a small camper because you're just not going to hang out inside of a, an adventure trailer you're going to be outside and when you show up somewhere in fifth wheel you've got all the conveniences home this buyer's trying to look away from that a little bit and just explore nature a little bit more but our buyer's been up and down all over from late 20s up to 65 years old which is very surprising for me and we do have a fair amount of first-time buyers as well which is nice and what's beautiful about this is you typically don't need a specialty tow vehicle you're not gonna have to go out and buy a three-quarter ton or a one-ton pickup you don't you're not dealing with a lot of ton weight you've got a small vehicle that tows relatively easily behind a small suv or a larger car a, a subaru can pull most of what we build and that's what's also appealing you don't have that investment of a tow vehicle we're looking at it right you know, now. Like, you shared where you were talking. So yeah, it looks. And so here's the thing. I think there's a. And you tell me if I'm wrong. Is there an opportunity here? We've talked about national parks and some of the underserved parks that we want to encourage people to visit. Or really, Kurt is helping us do through National Parks Traveler and things. Like that. And obviously, we need other mediums to help do that as well. It can't just be Kurt. But are there opportunities sure, for sure. manufacturers like you who manufacture these small trailers? And yes, I understand there's an appeal for BLM land and to get disconnected and things like that. But for the parks that don't have campgrounds that you could theoretically go park on BLM land that's near perhaps one of these parks, or is there any kind of cross promotion that could be done here between manufacturers to help maybe drive traffic to some of these lesser known disconnected places from your perspective, Rich? 
I believe if there was an opportunity to, I guess, if we had some way to put it on our website easily where people could research and find places to camp that are along those lines, they would do that very quickly would want to. And I can give you an idea. You just, when we go, when I go look at a campground that I'm going to go to, I have no idea how nice it is or how much privacy you have, or you stack on top of people. What is it really like? And the last one I visited was up in uh, Northern Michigan, up near Traverse Bay. It was a, it was an unbelievable park. I really liked it. They were friendly. It was very clean. I think campgrounds have come a long, a long way from what a lot of people probably they are. That all the amenities were kept very nice. And uh, there was a lot to do. It was right along uh, Grand Traverse Bay. There were lots of trails to hike, a lot of opportunities for kayaking and uh, bicycling. And we really enjoyed it. But the new buyer that's not done this before, it is exactly right that they don't know where they can go camping. They have this grandiose idea that they're going to go on to BLM land and be away from everybody. And ooh, we're going to see a grizzly or something, which, by the way, our trailers are grizzly proof. And uh, proof? Do, you, do you really want to say proof or just resistant? <laughs> I would say proof. They're not getting into our stuff. <laughs> we, we actually That's call them. invitation for somebody to hire a grizzly bear and attempt to get into your trailer. I'm not, put, put something appetizing inside of it. Yeah. I believe that if people had a way of understanding and knowing where they could go and it was more visual so that when they see the campground, they could, yes, this is what I'm looking to do. They would go do that. But when you just look one up, you don't really know what it's like until you visit it. And you can read some Yelp reviews or Google reviews and stuff and see a couple pictures here or there. But the, it's like the one we went to, I didn't think it was going to be quite as nice as it was. I, my expectations were lower, but it exceeded them. So I would just encourage people to get out and hit a couple places, especially if you're new. I think you're best to start your camping in a camp, campground that's close by so you get a feel for what you should be bringing along and you're always going to find the 10 items you don't need to bring it's it's that's kind of part of the fun though and a lot of our customers they love that rigging aspect they are constantly continually upgrading and modifying that's what's great about the owners groups i'm adding hot water because we, we don't have hot water i mean my small trailer's actually got 43 gallons of fresh water but no hot water so you use a portable hot water heater how are you attaching things to the roof things like that and these groups are where people learn so much more about the product and how to camp and what to expect, but I 100% agree with you guys. If there was more of a way to get the word out as to some of these areas where people could go camping, it's probably exactly what they envisioned, but they just don't know about it. I think it would help tremendously. Hey, Brian, Maybe. can I jump in here? Yeah, I was going to ask you, so go ahead. Yep. Yeah, yeah. First, I was concerned about 65-year-old is it the upper limit. I'm almost 66. I think I'd check it out, Rich. On our trip over to Rocky Mountain the other day, we went through a national forest and we had my buddy's pickup with a camper on it. And we just went up a forest road. We saw this little road dart off to the side. We drove up at about a hundred yards and camped. I'm not so sure you could pull a trailer up there because you don't know if there's going to be space to turn around. And so that's something you can out how you investigate that, Rich, before, obviously, if you have an opportunity to scout it out, that's one thing. Brian, going back to a couple of shows ago, I think we were talking about campgrounds in the national park system and campgrounds in general. and the park services efforts to try and envision the 21st century campground. I was in Rocky mountain, as I mentioned, and we saw a forest service campground right next to the national park and the border was right there together and they were shoehorned in there. And I don't know if that's camping. I don't know how much enjoyment you get out of being almost able to reach out and touch the RV or the, the camper next to you. We did go inside the national park and the, the national park campground was a little bit better spaced, but I think that's an issue. As more and more people head to the outdoors is we have to revisit how we set up campgrounds and what type of experience you want to have. As Rich was mentioning, a lot of us want to get away from being shoehorned in and being able to experience the beauty of nature with the little elbow room, so to speak. And I'm not exactly sure how we tackle that without better, better education and I guess more surveys on what exactly people want. I have an idea, Kurt. Eleanor and Shane, you guys are connected to the dealers and manufacturers, right? What if we just had uh, an RV that pops out its own hedges, like six feet from each side, <laughs> like artificial head. And then you can just create your own privacy wherever you're at. Forget whatever campground. We're just going to just be like slide outs. That's yeah. There probably is a regulation that we're going to break if we do that. Yeah. Great innovation. Yeah. Great <laughs> limitation. Yeah. I'm, hey. Kurt, I'm surprised if what you say there, 
only 35 of your destinations are the most popular. And 25. you mentioned 25. And you mentioned that this one is wall to wall RVs. So they're still busy like yep. the other, the non 25. The name brand ones are busy. So the one you mentioned was a name brand one, the, the one that they were jammed? Rocky Mountain. Yeah, Rocky Mountain. Okay. So that's one yeah, of the campgrounds. All the campgrounds were, camp were full. Okay. Yeah, I think we see the same thing in Canada. You've got the big national parks that are that are well-known, especially where Kara is, Jasper, Banff. They're, I'm assuming they're pretty full right about now. But you've got other properties and people don't always know. And maybe that's something we can engage our Go RV in Canada and our Go RV team to look at. They do on their website have how to RV and information for first timers and talk a bit about the camping experience, but maybe try to mm -hmm. some more opportunities that are up there. It's, a, it's an interesting marketing strategy, right? Because you always talk about, we, there's so much content out there about, we use Banff and Jasper as an example, right? So much content about Jasper and why to camp there and why you can go hiking and what you can do. And same thing with Banff because it's so many people who go there. So many people have great content. What you really need is to get the eyeballs of the people who are considering Banff to divert them to the other parks. That's how you really need to reach them. So what we need is a video on YouTube, like why Banff sucks or don't go camping in Banff. Well, and, and, well, and then people would watch that and then they, then you could present that in that video. What? Hey, Brian, put that with your hedge idea. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a ton of great ideas. I'm not saying we should listen to anything I say, but seriously, really, like I'm not talking about insulting for honestly, I'm not saying about insulting Banff or Jasper, but the idea is sound. That's how you reach. You don't want to title the video that and create that kind of content, obviously, but to reach the people who are already aware of Banff and who are researching those things and insert yourself into the conversation so that these national parks who are underserved are being seen because people aren't Googling them. So you put out the content all day, but if they don't know the names, they're not finding it. Well, I, but then the other issue is if the, the few campgrounds that are available are all full, then you can talk about another location all you want. If there's nowhere to camp or it, or if it's trying to say this kindly, or if it's a location that maybe can't provide the level of service and amenities that our consumers, those consumers are looking for then you're in this conundrum where you can push traffic there all you want, but if you don't have capacity or service level that, that consumers are driving for, it's not going to work. I think we have a bigger issues in it, not maybe not sweepingly across the board, but in some areas we have a bigger issue where we have really aging infrastructure in lots of these parks. And again, I'm speaking specifically for the ones I'm familiar with here in, in Canada, but those kinds of limitations push guests to the parks that have received all the funding dollars to get renos and all of those things. It's a circular problem, in my opinion. Couple that with, I was talking with somebody from Alberta Parks a, a couple of months ago about us doing a better job of partnering the, on, between the public and private sector so that in a dream utopian world, when so many consumers are searching for campground location, in Alberta, their first thought is those national and provincial parks are often full and fully booked. And it would be nice to see us find a solution that helps push through that traffic. If, this, if we have no site in our public parks, that's a shame and sorry, but here's five private privately owned campgrounds within however many kilometers of the, the park and check them out for availability. There's better ways we can be serving the consumer broadly as an industry, in my opinion. Yeah, there are a couple of go ahead. There are internet sites that, that will do that for you. For instance, when I was going to Scott's Bluff, I knew there wasn't a campground at Scott's Bluff. And so the one is Hip Camp and it's directory of privately owned campgrounds. And you could put it in the, your destination and it will pop up. Here's one. I think it's still spreading. I don't know if they operate in Canada. I will forewarn folks that I don't think that they totally review the members that they accept into their system because the campground that I signed up for two nights was Cowpath. Yeah, we have, we have the hurdles around all of that stuff. There's regulatory concerns for me there. Uh, there's lots of boondocking situations that maybe don't have licensing and things like that. So there's so many pieces to the puzzle. It's wish there was a 
easy answer. No, and we know there's not, but that's why I think it's good to have these conversations so we can start to tackle this piece by piece. And we've talked about that on previous shows specific to Kurt. I know he came out with that brand new guide that tries to bridge the gap, but ways to cross promote private public infrastructure overflow, where to send those kinds of places. And so I think the more conversations we have with each other, who are the stakeholders who can drive these conversations, the better we can figure out well, this is step one. Two, three, four, five. And hopefully we can try to also address, I think some of, one of the biggest barriers is consumers don't necessarily understand the difference between a national park and a provincial park and a private park. And so there's this, and because we don't have the type of tools and resources where a consumer can just go and find all the campgrounds in one place, it's created this fragmented <clears throat> scenario where a consumer has to access multiple different resources to access multiple different sectors. And if they don't have that awareness, it, here we are back at the awareness conversation. It's a hurdle for sure. We got a lot of smart people on this call and who are watching. So hopefully we can put our heads together and figure out something. Is there opportunities you feel like Eleanor and Shane from a dealer perspective to get information into consumers hands? Does it benefit you guys to do that? I feel like it would. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we always encourage, first of all, our, our dealer members to work with the campground operators in their region, develop a relationship with the campground operator or the campground that are there, they're nearby you. And same with the campground operators. If you're near a national park, give them the information, be proactive and make sure that you have that information to them. So if they're full, they can give, give your contact information out for overflow dealers. There's a lot that goes on at the dealership level when someone's coming to pick up their RV, but absolutely on how to use it. If they had a where to camp component that they could incorporate it into the learning or the onboarding of the new consumer, that would be a great opportunity there. What if yeah. we, Kurt, I'm just throwing out a random suggestion for you, but what if places like the national park traveler could put together a guide, a booklet one page, two pages, five pages, whatever, that could be given to people who purchase new RVs. What a concept. <laughs> I, I know you have the guide, Kurt. I'm talking about a, I'm talking about a, this is a very brief, this is underserved list. Like here's some alternative, like focus on this yeah. to avoid the overcrowding. Obviously in Canada, when we're talking about this, but I, because yeah, you have your big guide, people are going to absolutely reference that but targeting niche, this is what we want to do. Well, in our guide, which just came out last month, we look at every national park in the U.S. that has campgrounds. So if it's a small park and has a campground, it's in that guide. If it doesn't have a campground, it's not going to be in that guide. Maybe down the road with further iterations, we could include a small park without a campground and say where the closest campground is. It's uh it's a tough question. I'm not sure which way to go. If the general public doesn't care about the smaller units, it's not worth investing the time in it. And I'm working, actually today I was working on a survey to put out to our readership to see what the deal is, why they're only going to 25 units in the national park system. But uh, we are thinking ahead to the second edition and what we can do to make it more responsive. And if there's an interest from the Canadian RV industry to, to include Canadian parks in that guide, I'd be happy to go down that road too. Is the guide available for purchase or is it, is how do people obtain the guide? Yeah, we sell the guide for nine ninety five, and you can get it through amazon.com or you can go to the traveler website and get it directly there. But I think it's a, a great resource in terms of parks that have the campgrounds and Eleanor, I don't know if you caught earlier shows where we talked about it, but it breaks down everything from whether there's Wi-Fi to what the hookups are, to how big of an RV will fit in there into that campground. And that's just three of the, there's probably 25 or three dozen different aspects that we look like, look at for each campground. Is there a, and just continuing down this path, I was there with National Parks Traveler, which is brainstorming here, like Kara, is there an opportunity for RVD of Alberta to partner with somebody like National Parks Traveler or some other kind of publisher or whatever to disseminate to dealers in specific regions? Like these are underserved areas of Alberta that you should maybe go check out or BC. Uh, and here's private campgrounds around it. I will say the Private Campground Owners Association of Alberta is already working closely with RBTA of Alberta to do that. I am handing out literature and tells and stuff to the dealers at RBTA of Alberta all the time. We've started now connecting when I have 
campground owners, members of the association, I've reached out to them and let them know that if they have availabilities that they're struggling to fill, whether it's seasonal or short term, if they send me that information, I'm now disseminating that out to dealers as well, typically around their region. But hopefully, I know we filled a couple of seasonal sites that way this year in a couple of our member parks, which is great. I think sometimes that's a barrier to a sale is we'd love to get into the lifestyle, but we can't find a site. And so that's a great way for our organizations to partner. And I think that's a one of the biggest benefits to the type of partnership that PCOA has with RBD of Alberta. And hopefully that will just continue to grow and get more and more robust as we get more members and more active campground participation. Yeah, Brian, in a perfect world, and I can't believe after all these years of how long this industry has been around, but why can't we have a, a central site where to find availability? Right now, if you want to find a site, you got to call 20 or 30 individual campgrounds and it's very frustrating and I would love to see how somehow the industry can get a booking.com or something that can talk to everybody and I want availability near Sudbury, Ontario and it gives me this park and this park and, and somehow I'd love for us to get there. So the answer is that we can in certain instances, right? Like CampSpot just released their API, some of these other big reservation systems in camping in the camping industry have their own APIs that we can, not we, but someone could develop and aggregate to like CampSpot just par partner with RoverPass to include their content on each other's sites, right? There are ways to do this. The problem is that it all takes time. It all takes money. And there are so many people who are trying to get into this space with their own marketplace and make a profit off of it, that it's an uphill battle to create something that's altruistic and doesn't really want to play favorites or anything like that with one reservation system or another or private parks versus public parks or whatever, that you just are climbing this uphill battle against all these people who are throwing millions of dollars at advertising for their own site. We're all competing with each other. The biggest yeah. issue for me with that is it generates a significant amount of consumer disenchantment where I get emails and calls daily from campers, consumers who are like, I... I'm looking for a site. I'm having a terrible time. I, can you give me any suggestion of this area? And then my answer always still has to be, you still have to get in touch with that park individually and find out about availability. And so I get that we're all struggling to maybe play nicely in the sandbox together, but I have concerns about the long-term impact of our consumers being think it's creating this awareness issue or maybe not solely the, the re sole reason for it, but it's a significant reason for this awareness issue because we don't have a tool like that available to, to keep as many campers camping as we can by filling every site there is. We have a comment on Facebook. We just need more campgrounds, whether it be private or government here in Western Canada, most campgrounds are always full. I know of some campgrounds in Western Canada who have availability and they're smaller properties. They don't have the same type of budget or access to funds that, that some of these other parks do. And so how do you address those problems? It's a big, the big issue, yeah. the big. Brian, hey Brian, yeah. down here in the States, we've got a company that runs recreation.gov. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all. Supposedly covers all of the federal land, whether it's park service, forest service or BLM and it's a nightmare because while it's supposed to level the playing field for everybody, if you don't have a fiber optic line into your computer, you're never going to win. You're never going to land a campsite. So I don't know what the greater solution is as opposed to maybe going to, to a lottery and even that's got problems. But is there something like that in Canada for the federal lands, provincial lands? I think that's There's a better question. Parks Canada and then the individual provinces have their own sites. They don't, they aren't unified all in one place. But, and I think that can be a part of this problem too, is a lot of people don't know that Banff is a national park and Kananaskis is a provincial park. And so now you have to seek resources to, to visit those different places. And it does get very frustrating, especially when they book so far in advance that by the time you get that stuff sorted out, there's no space left. Yeah, it's a challenge for sure. And I don't know what the answer is. Again, I, I think the only way it really honestly works 
Is this some kind of nonprofit who has no specific interest in one booking system over another or private versus public or just this kind of altruistic entity funds something like this, but I don't know where that comes from or how that works. Yeah. And it isn't going to be cheap. No. And, and again, it requires, it also requires open access to basically APIs. And some companies provide those, some don't, some provide certain information via them and the ability to book and some just provide the data and not the ability. It's just a mess, Shane. Like you're right. Like it definitely needs solved, but there has to be a willingness among all these people that participate and to some participating in something like that cuts away the profit that their whole intention is to make, which is fair. They have a right to make it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I echo Kara's sentiment about frustration from campers and it, it's something that we need to address as an industry. It's a lot, especially all these new one, new people are getting into it. If they can't find a campsite, they're going to get out of this industry as quick as they got in it. So I'm, I'm just thinking we, we have to find something, uh, some sort of solution. <clears throat> yeah. So. I don't know. I'll look in, I'll look into it for just from a marketing standpoint, from an API perspective, because I need to know that for our clients, who has it, who does what, who can do what, just so we have the knowledge, right. Of what companies could work. But I think it's going to take some kind of an industry leader, whether that's a Rover pass, whether that's a dirt, whether that's a camp spot marketplace, whether that's a hip camp or whatever, recreation.gov. I think it's going to just, I think it's going to take somebody to say, we can still make a profit while also helping. Yeah, I think I want to touch on the fact too that there are so many players in the sandbox, not just our software companies. It, we also have, we have some private campground owners who maybe don't want their park listed as a competitor to Banff National Park on a site. And so they're going to communicate frustration to us about that. And there's just so many perspectives to manage to make it happen. And I think the big picture needs to remain the focus. This, this addressing the significant consumer need must remain the focus for it to ever come to. All good ideas. Focus. You just have to keep brainstorming with each other and moving forward. So I'm sure there's a way to solve it. We're all, except for me, smart here. We'll keep pushing the conversation forward. That's all we can do. I, we, we've seen, and for those of you who've been watching, we've seen Susan Carpenter pop in and out from the RV Women's Lounge, just having audio issues today for some reason said her computer and stuff got upgraded. So she's got a lot of useful information that we were hoping to have her share with us today, but we'll have to hopefully get that from her a month from now in the next RV industry show that we have. But that's why she's been popping in and out here, just in case you guys were curious. What else we have that's on come across your desks? Eleanor, Shane, Rich, anything? Kurt? Yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of curious. Jeff mentioned the need to bring in more campgrounds across the countries, whether it's private or government. What does it cost to launch a campground? <laughs> Eating by well, land. That's a big giant rabbit hole. It's so easy, Kurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, couldn't cover it probably in 10 minutes. It's really dependent on a ton of variables. There's all kinds of regulatory limitation. Depends on obviously location and so many things. It's one of the most difficult questions to answer that I get often. It's like. How much does it cost to start a campground? I can't answer. <laughs> I need more details to answer it. That much money. Yeah. Well, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I think we also have, we have the problem with compounded because we have older campgrounds facing re regulatory issue and limitate new limitations on them and their operations. That's pushing them to either sell and not always be in the case where they'll remain a campground or kind of walk away. And so you're losing sites on top of not being able to always develop new ones and the compounding problem that is, it's concerning, I think for sure. Yeah, I think just to, again, I have no development expertise in the industry, Kurt, but to your, just depends on location and cost of materials and inflation and regulations and permitting and so many different variables, how long it takes and how quick it is. and. But it's just, it, it requires some, for sure, commitment. And there's tons of issue with getting financing and various other hurdles in the way that we don't necessarily have that chunk of change sitting around 
the whole process becomes a real need. So I was just looking, I, I knew I, I saw a slide somewhere. So I was in, in Elkhart at a breakfast and according to KOA, adding a new build campground is between 45,000 and 55,000 a site. Percent. And at, yep. And adding sites to an existing campground is between 17 and 18,000 a site. Yeah. Those seem like good assessments to me. In my experience, I left campground development I personally did was in, oh my gosh, it was 10 years ago. And I added 30 sites and it cost me $150,000. So I think there's a lot of variables at play. And that was 10 years ago. It's definitely more than that. And it's the problem is these communities and municipality and their councils don't see the benefit. They, uh, they hear from homeowners who are arguing on one side, but they don't think about the economic impact of adding a new campground in their community. And that's something that our industry has been trying to help with uh, to give those figures because it is a significant footprint economically for any municipality adding a new campground. They just, can I, yeah, sorry, finish your thought, Shane. Sorry. No, it's just, it's a, it's, it's an ongoing process to, to communicate that. Can I ask, and maybe carry the answer to this or Shane or anybody else, but of that 45 to $55,000 per site, what is the biggest chunk of that cost? Is it materials? Is it concrete? Is it laying all the stuff underneath it? Yeah. Uh, for me personally, that was, it was excavation cost. It was machine rental. It was labor, but certainly the components had a stoles. I had to add a power transformer. All of the water infrastructure, that stuff adds up real quick, but top costs for sure with excavation uh, and, and labor. And I'll bet you they're including all the, before you even put a shovel in the ground cost, yeah, MOE to studies, the permits, the lawyers, the, yeah, all that's <clears throat> that average go over the cost of the offices, the shower houses and all that. I was at that same power breakfast and I thought. 55,000 sounded high, but when you averaged in everything that's at that park over, over all the spots, that's about what it was. I think they may have even included, like it might be on an average of a 75 or a hundred spot campground. I can't recall, but they talked a lot about the shortages because you've got so many new campers that came into this when they couldn't travel and go to hotels and fly. People still were going to recreate and they needed to do it where they felt safe with just their own family. So camping was one of the, uh, the quick things that people thought about. You couldn't buy a camper for a while. You couldn't get a kayak or a bicycle. Everything was sold out that you might possibly do during a pandemic when you had to stick around your family only. And when you bring in all these new owners, they need places to go, at least until they figure out where they can go that's not crowded. But we discovered that same thing you were saying earlier. It's you, you call and they might tell you, we only have two weekends this year left where you can fit yourself in. And we were going with a group of people. So it was even tougher to find campgrounds that were spots next to each other, which we were fortunate to do. But it's, it is probably one of the biggest things because when it, you go buy a big camper, a travel trailer, <laughs> fifth wheel, and you can't find a place to use it other than a Walmart parking lot, you're not going to keep it very long. Yeah. When you buy a small camper like mine, if you can't get in, you'll probably find another place to go. And you can use it still. So again, another little benefit of small campers and these Overland style camping is they can go almost anywhere, but there's definitely a, I don't know if I want to use the word loss of interest by people to put up campgrounds be, because they typically are, you don't make a ton of money. It can be good, stable money, particularly right now, but it's a big commitment. Just if you owned a bed and breakfast, you need to be there. And you're committing your weekends and oftentimes your weeks to being there, to be able to take care of your guests that are there. And that, that makes it a challenge for, to find people that would be interested in, in doing those types of opening, those types of businesses. And only thank for organizations like KOA that promote that type of stuff and help people find ways to afford to open up a campground or help them to get started, to do it. Yeah. No, I agree, especially in an environment where it's so costly, it's so expensive, it's very difficult to get financing. It's a big undertaking. It's, it's a lifestyle that not everyone's capable of. Well, and financing is getting harder, not harder, but more expensive now. So, so expensive. Right yeah. now it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
money used to feel pretty free and it's not anymore to borrow it. It's, it's escalating and will probably continue to for a little while here. Agreed. We just need an army of six-year-olds with little bulldozer toys to excavate and save some costs for people. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking all kinds of creative ways to save expansions, Kara. I probably shouldn't say this live on a podcast, but my son just learned how to operate the excavator and is going to be put to work on his dad's campground here too. Mm -hmm. So some, there's some innovators out there copying your ideas, Brian. Is that a real excavator or is that one of the toy ones that... No, a real one. A real one. Yeah, I'm afraid of I would have been all over that when I was a kid. Like I just, cause that's how we were. I was entertained when I was a kid. I didn't have all the electronic stuff. They just said, go out to into the backyard and dig a hole. I was thrilled. So. You stay in holes. Oof. Yeah, we just got to get the kids back interested in digging holes. And I feel like there's probably a regulation or something that stops us from really doing that. But I was just going to say, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> Not safety compliance related. <laughs> Pesky regulations are always getting in the way, but okay. Any final thoughts that we have here before we wrap up the show? No, it was a great show. I appreciate the invite again, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us on. Thanks awesome. for well, Thank you guys. Uh, really appreciate you joining us for another episode of MC Fireside Chats. Next week is the first week of the August month. And so we're going to have an open discussion here with a, a few of our regular recurring guests. Looking forward to that. Always don't know what we're going to talk about until we show, until we start the show, but I'm sure it will be interesting. So excited to have all those guys back with us. We want to thank our sponsor again for this episode, which is Camp Spot. We're really appreciative of them for sponsoring this episode. Again, if you're looking for a reservation system for your campground, or if you're a consumer talking about RVs, purchasing dealers, things like that, be sure to check out Camp Spot's marketplace as well. And then if you want to check out our past episodes or anything like that, as a reminder, we are available on mcfiresidechats.com, as well as on a podcast that you can listen to later, Apple, Google, Spotify, all those kinds of places. So really appreciate everybody joining us. And we will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. You. Thank you. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.